Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. God of all creation, send your Holy Spirit among us this day, that the seed of your word might take root in our hearts and bear the fruits of peace, love, and justice for all. Amen. The scripture today comes from Genesis 32, verse 1 through 21, and Genesis 33, verse 1 through 4. Jacob went on his way, and God's messengers approached him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp, and he named that sacred place Mananaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau, toward the land of Seir, the open country of Edom. He gave them these orders. Say this to my master Esau. This is the message of your servant Jacob. I've lived as an immigrant with Laban, where I've stayed till now. I own cattle, donkeys, flocks, men servants, and women servants. I'm sending this message to my master now to ask that he be kind. The messengers returned to Jacob and said, We went out to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you with 400 men. Jacob was terrified and felt trapped. So he divided the people with him and the flocks, cattle, and camels into two camps. He thought, if Esau meets the first camp and attacks it, at least one camp will be left to escape. Jacob said, Lord, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make sure things go well for you. I don't deserve how loyal and truthful you've been to your servant. I went away across the Jordan with just my staff, but now I've become two camps. Save me from my brother Esau. I'm afraid he will come and kill me, the mothers and their children. You are the one who told me I will make sure things go well for you, and I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, so many you won't be able to count them. Jacob spent that night there. From what he had acquired, he set aside a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 nursing camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He separated these herds and gave them to his servants. He said to them, go ahead of me and put some distance between each of the herds. He ordered the first group. When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, who are you with? Where are you going? And whose herds are these in front of you? Say, they are your servant Jacob's, a gift sent to my master Esau. And Jacob is actually right behind us. He also ordered the second group, the third group, and everybody following the herds. Say exactly the same thing to Esau when you find him. Say also, your servant Jacob is right behind us. Jacob thought, I may be able to pacify Esau with the gift I'm sending ahead. When I meet him, perhaps he will be kind to me. So Jacob sent the gift ahead of him, but he spent that night in the camp. Jacob looked up and saw Esau approaching with 400 men. Jacob divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two women servants. He put the servants and their children first, Leah and her children after them, and Rachel and Joseph last. He himself went in front of them and bowed to the ground seven times as he was approaching his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, 
threw his arms around his neck, kissed him, and they wept. The word of God for the people of God. This summer, we are talking about faith formed through relationships. And we started the, the first couple of weeks talking about our relationship with God as that relationship that is kind of most foundational to who we are. And the last three weeks, the, the two and then this one, we've been talking about what it means to be raised by a family. Because it's a funny truth. Whether you like your family, love your family, fight with your family, you can never quite escape the place you grew up. They will always be a profound influence on your life. In fact, the National Study on Youth and Religion says that if you want to know what a teenager's faith life will look like when they're your age, if you are their parents, look at the faith life they see in you. Because there is a better than average chance they will be nearly identical. We are inevitably formed by the family that we grow up with. So we've been walking through the story of kind of the first family of the Jewish faith. We talked about Abraham, we talked about his son Isaac, and now we have come to his grandson Jacob. One of two grandsons. Now the title for today is Forgiveness. And it might seem a little funny that this would come in the midst of a family series, but we'll, we'll come to that soon. And if I were a different kind of preacher and we had a different kind of text, this would be the five steps you need to offer forgiveness to all the people in your life, right? That is a valuable sermon, but it's not this one. In fact, that would kind of probably be Esau's story. But we have Jacob's story. Really a story about learning to ask for forgiveness. And that's not an easy thing to do. To ask for forgiveness. From the time that we're very little, I think our parents try to instill in us that it is good to be the kind of person who apologizes when you do wrong. Right? So I didn't have any siblings because my parents got it right the first time, but um, <laughs> my husband has a younger brother. He's a younger brother. And so maybe you're familiar with this scene that played out in their house. Um, Brian, my brother-in-law, would be playing with a toy that Patrick decided he needed to play with. And so Patrick, being the bigger brother, took said toy. Yes. And what ensued? Mom! <laughs> He took my thing! And my mother-in-law would, like many parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, teachers, take the toy, give it back to little brother, and say, now Patrick, what do you say? And their response would probably be something like, I'm sorry. Right? The super sincere apology of the six-year-old. As I get a little bit older, um, funny thing happened. Around high school, Patrick stopped growing, and his brother didn't. <laughs> Suddenly, um, he felt it was good to maybe be a little nicer to his no longer little brother. 
And he found that, that if he picked on Brian, um, now Brian could hit back. So suddenly when he did something wrong, he figured out real fast that um, if he didn't apologize, there were going to be consequences for his actions. There might be a little brother beatdown, or there might be the loss of the car keys or freedom, right? So he moved from that kind of forced request for forgiveness to what we'll call a coerced request for forgiveness. It's kind of a bargain, right? If I say I'm sorry, you will not hit me. And then, I, you know, I think most of us kind of move through those stages. And at some point around adulthood, we figure out that apologies make the world go round. Right? Whether you're sincere or not, there are going to be moments in certain relationships where you just need to say, I'm sorry, to keep things functioning in a smooth and easy capacity. Right? For those of us who are married, we don't always use the words, I'm sorry. Sometimes we use the words, yes, dear. Okay, yeah, so you're more with me than you want to admit. That's fine, yes. This is the self-serving apology. We might mean it, we might kind of mean it, but really, we just want to keep the train on the track, and it costs us nothing to just apologize and move forward. Here's the funny thing, though. A real apology. To genuinely admit that you have been wrong, that you have done wrong, and that you owe deference to someone else costs a lot. It costs pride. It costs ego. It means giving up the fact that you're right. And I don't know about you, I like to be right. It's a funny thing in my life. And so having to admit that maybe I'm not right this time, asking for that kind of forgiveness is a pretty expensive proposition. That's the level of forgiveness that we hear in Jacob's story. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. He is the inheritor of the promise. You would think that he had grown up a pretty stable and well-adjusted kid. But Jacob is not only a younger brother, he is a younger twin. Which in the ancient world meant he's kind of exactly like his brother, but not quite. In fact, when he came out of the womb, he was grasping his older brother Esau's heel. And he gets named that. Jacob means he grasps. And Jacob spends the rest of his life really kind of grasping at anything he can get. He becomes that sly trickster of a kid, right? He will grasp even if it means taking it at the expense of his brother. There's a good reason Jacob is afraid of meeting up with Esau. He hasn't seen his brother in decades, but the last time they were together, Jacob pulled off two cute little cons. The first was he convinced his ailing and blind father to give him 
the blessing that should have been Esau's. And if that wasn't enough to kind of take the blessing that would become the inheritance of God's promise, he meets Esau one day when Esau's coming in from the field really hot and hungry, like he's been putting up a wheelchair ramp at UM Army all day with no lunch, and he offers him a bowl of soup. And he convinces his older brother to trade away his birthright, his property, his inheritance, the flocks, and the people who will be his for a bowl of soup. There's a good reason Jacob's a little nervous about meeting Esau again. He knows that he has grasped his way right out of a relationship with his brother. He has spent nearly two decades in a foreign land for fear of what his brother would do to him because of his conning trickster ways. In fact, it says in our text today, when Jacob hears that Esau is coming, he is terrified. And Jacob runs through all of those apologies that he's learned. Right? What's the first thing he does? He sends the note. Right? He, he dashes off the note. Oh, my Lord and Master, your brother is coming. I'm so sorry for what you've done here. And he sends the note, hoping that Esau will be okay with it. I'm sorry. And then Esau's coming with 400 men. And Jacob's like, ooh, maybe the note didn't work. So he starts bargaining, right? Not with Esau. He starts bargaining with God. How many of you sound like Jacob when you pray to God? You told me that there would be a promise and there would be an inheritance and I would be a great nation and now my brother's about to show up, so what are you going to do about this? Is that how your prayers go? He starts bargaining with God, this kind of coerced, right? Like, I'll do the apology thing when he gets here, but you better make sure this is going to be okay, right? And maybe Jacob senses that's not quite going to work either. Because what does he do? He starts the bribery. This is the self-serving apology if I ever saw one, right? I will send him 400 sheep. I will send him 40 cows and camels and donkeys. I will line them out in so many groups that they can't even travel together. And every one of them will apologize for me on the way there. And maybe by the time I actually see Esau, he will have been softened up by all that I have to offer him. But in his heart of hearts, Jacob knows that even that is not enough. So we pulled the verses to read today from the lectionary. And the lectionary plays a nasty little trick on you. It skips the best part of this story. Right? So we read 1 to 21, and then we picked up again and read 1 to 4, which is the shiny, happy ending. Everything's going to be okay. But there's a bit in the middle that the lectionary doesn't give you, and that is what happens overnight. Jacob has sent the gift to Esau. All of his 
property, his land, his tribe has gone ahead of him. But he spends the night at the river. His wife, wives, really, and children in the camp. And he goes off to spend some time alone. Now, what happens to you when you are faced with the consequences of your actions and you find yourself alone and awake in the middle of the night? For me, that's about the time stuff gets real. In the middle of the night, by yourself, that's the moment when the bargaining and the self-serving and the justifications start to let go. And sure enough, Jacob is confronted with a man. And the text says they wrestled all night long. Jacob wrestles with an angel of the Lord all night long. And as dawn is breaking, and he is still fighting, the angel even reaches out and injures Jacob's hip so that he'll let go, and he won't. And, and Jacob, who is really in no position to do so, says, bless me. He's still Jacob. And the angel initiates this very interesting conversation. They've been wrestling all night long, but we only get about two lines in morning's light. The angel says, what is your name? And then he gives Jacob a new name. Now for us in this day and age, um, names generally get picked either from family that we loved or the baby book, or if Freakonomics is to be believed, just out of thin air, we decide to call our children Ladasha. Um, names are kind of, they're, they're accessories, right? They're personal expressions. But in the ancient world, if a thing had a name, whether it was a person or a place, that name meant something. It came from somewhere. At birth, Jacob got, got labeled the one who grasps, and he spends his life grasping after things, mostly things that are not his. And so when the angel says to Jacob, tell me your name, he is asking Jacob to admit who he is. He is daring Jacob to confess all that he has been and all that he has done. That name carries with it all the baggage of the things that he has done to Esau and to Laban. And if that's what he does to family, imagine what he's done to not family. Tell me your name. He's asking for his confession. He wants Jacob to be honest about who he is. Because, y'all, when you wrestle with God in the middle of the night, that's frequently what happens. And let's be honest, it's wrestling. It's hard. When we get down in the dirt and admit the things that we have done wrong, it's not pretty. But what does the angel do? 
he gives him the blessing. He names him Israel. And he promises that all that God had in store will come to pass. And Jacob, because he's still Jacob, says, what is your name? And the angel says, you have to ask? I've just named you Israel. I've named you one who wrestles with God and with man. You don't need my name. And he doesn't. Israel knows. He knows his God. And he knows the blessing has been granted. And it is a very different man who limps across the river the next day. He has been forever changed by that experience, by that profound confession, by seeking real forgiveness. And when he comes to Esau, it is in humility. Seven times he bows before Esau. And what does Esau do? He picks him up and he hugs him and they weep together. I do think it's fascinating that we don't get Esau's side of the story. I mean, really, by all accounts, he's the wronged party here. There, there seems like there should be some night-long wrestling about whether or not he's going to forgive Jacob when he gets there, but there's not. Because really, that's kind of the way God's story works. In God's story, where grace is required, it is always given. The hard work is Jacob coming to terms with who he really is because the forgiveness is already there. The blessing is already there. Esau is already on his way to embrace his brother. It is Jacob who has to find it in himself to ask for the forgiveness. This is the nature of our faith, is it not? We are a people founded on forgiveness. I think that's the greatest gift we can give to our kids. To teach them not just how to forgive, but that they are a forgiven people. Our faith teaches that God meets each of us, that he calls us by name, and that he forgives. Not because we earned it, not because we say the right words or mumble the right prayer, not because we offer some kind of bargain in the middle of the night. God forgives because God desires a relationship with us and for us to be in relationship with one another. When Jacob crosses over the river, the blessing is there. The nation is born. But it takes a whole night's worth of wrestling. Because real forgiveness is expensive. It's not about the prayer. It's not about the bargain. Real forgiveness comes with confession and humility. It comes with wanting the new 
name. Desiring to be a new creation. In a moment, we will come to the table. It is perhaps the most profound symbol we have of the forgiveness that has been extended to us. That we have been given the right to feast with God. And when we come to that table, every time we come, we open with a prayer of confession. Right? In fact, most weeks we say the same prayer. And so maybe for you, like me, there's that temptation for it to become words. Words that we know and that we say. But Paul says, if you're going to come to this table, be reconciled to God and to one another. And so I challenge you this morning. As we come into that prayer, as we say that confession, let it be a wrestling of the heart. Hold before you those people that you have wronged, those relationships that need healing. Be put right this morning with God. And then when you leave today, keep wrestling until you can be put right with your brothers and your sisters. See, we are a forgiven people. We know the blessing that that grace can be. And so it is our call to extend it to others, to freely offer the gift that we have been freely given. Wrestling down forgiveness is hard. But it is our foundation and our greatest grace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.